This is a classic podcast from Unqualified Gamers. Hear more at unqualifiedgamers.com. I think I realized why you were so bad at the new Final Fantasy IV. Oh, really? Tell me. I think it's because you probably didn't know how to use augments very well. Because I know how to use augments. I changed like some augments up a little bit, and I'm literally walking through the game on auto battle. And I have it on hard mode. What are you augmenting? So, for example, with uh, Cecil, I've got draw attacks on him, and then I've got counter attack and reach. So I have him in the back row. So every enemy always attacks him, and he counter attacks and basically kills everything in one to two hits. Takes like 100 to 200 points of damage per hit. And then I've got dual cast on Rosa, so she can cast two spells on the same turn. So he'll never die. It sounds to me like you're cheating. Like I said, I think the reason why you had problems with this game is because you weren't good at it. It sounds to me like you broke the game. Would you agree with that? Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's kind of fun for a game you've beaten 40 times before. I don't mind breaking the game at, at that point. Very interesting. Very interesting, because that is exactly what I wanted to talk about when talking about Final Fantasy VIII. About breaking games? Yeah. Wait a minute. Listener... <laughs> I love that you, you have been. You, you only remember to mention the name of our podcast like two minutes into it. I love it. What is the name of our podcast? It is Unqualified, a fried chicken video game podcast where we are unqualified to talk about KFC's new video game, Chicken Lickin' Splickin' Kickin'. Uh, brought to you by Yonoid. <laughs> good so wait a minute you're gonna talk about a final fantasy game on this podcast i've never done it before so i might as well start now oh man is it gonna be as good as final fantasy 13 2 oh boy will it i don't know have you you've played final fantasy 8 okay so i played final fantasy 8 when the game first came out i played through it a single time it was one of the worst final fantasy experiences i ever had and I have never played it again. Okay. Um, so this is kind of interesting to me because we are actually old enough to the point where there may be listeners that haven't played Final Fantasy VIII. Like, isn't that kind of crazy? Yeah. Uh, so that's crazy. So we actually have to explain a little bit what the game is all about. If you had to describe it kind of briefly, how would you put it and what did you hate so much about it in a general sense? So it's a bad game. Uh, okay. No, it, you know, it, a little less general. So it, uh, for me, it was a, it was your kind of standard Final Fantasy fair post Final Fantasy VII. So they tried, they went more realistic with characters and more uh, dark and realistic with settings. And then they tried a lot of interesting ideas that I don't think uh, were refined enough to make a good game. Okay, such as? So, their draw system and junction system, like your the backbone of their magic system and stat system, 
made it so incredibly easy to break the game, not to mention it was boring. So you've got a boring, easy way to break the game, which that doesn't sound like fun to me. But it's a JRPG. Don't you play those for the stories? I also find them fun <laughs> when when they have good gameplay. Okay, that's fair. But like my idea of fun in a in a Japanese role playing game, in a game where you do it a turn based system or an active time battle, is not sitting in the same battle for forty minutes and drawing magic up to ninety nine. Like that that to me is not my idea of fun. One hundred. They let you go to one hundred in this game. Fuck. Yeah. So there's one more you got to draw. Okay. So uh, to the listener that hasn't played it, obviously every Final Fantasy game has a slightly different magic system or leveling system or job system uh, or some other way to to make it very distinct. Like, you can't just pick up a Final Fantasy game. You can't beat Final Fantasy VII, then pick up thirteen halfway through the game and be like, oh, I know exactly what I'm doing, because they do something unique in every game, which is a strong the strength of the series, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that's good, you know. Absolutely. Well, no, it's good that they do that kind of experimentation because it keeps things from getting stale. Otherwise, you've got a series like Dragon Quest, which <laughs> there is a small... And it's actually not small. It's got a very dedicated fan base, but the systems are, are almost always the exact same. Very little differentiation between the games. Even in Dragon Quest Eight, Because I remember you liked that a lot. I did like it a lot. I liked it a lot because of... A lot of other things about that game. Um, it was very traditional Dragon Quest, though. Okay. Well, so Final Fantasy VIII, the magic system is the most radically different. Um, and the guardian forces replace summons or espers or whatever creatures from the other games there are. Or uh, what do they call them in, uh, in Final Fantasy X? Idolans? Idolans, yes, yes. They call them that in Nine as well, I think. So, they do. Idolans, Espers, whatever. Final Fantasy VIII's version is Guardian Forces, abbreviated as GFs, causing everyone to make as many puns about girlfriends as humanly possible. So you equip a Guardian Force to your character, and the idea is they're supposed to kind of bond to your character. You can equip up to, like, five or six of them to your character. There's about 20 or so in the game. And uh, you equip it, and you can junction some of your stats to magic, thanks to your Guardian Force. Like, Ifrit lets you junction spells to strength. So, maybe your strength is only 25, but, oh, you just junctioned 100 Firagas to your strength, well, now suddenly it's, like, 80. So you're much, much more powerful. Do you think it would have worked if the enemies didn't level with you? No, I, th- it, I, I think it probably would have broken it even more, because, okay. well, I don't know. It's tough to say. Again, it's been a long time since I've played it, but if you, I mean... You you junction your strength up to the highest stat it could possibly be within the first two hours of the game, and you are literally doing what maximum damage for the rest of the game at that point. I mean, you're killing bosses in one hit, right? Pretty much, yeah. 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 Okay. So, so yeah, and uh, listener, and this is the only Final Fantasy game that's done this. Uh, well, main Final Fantasy game, uh, Final Fantasy Tactics is kind of an exception with random battles, but in terms of this game, every battle the enemies scale with your level. So they level up with you. So if you can't beat a boss, you can't just gain 10 levels because they're going to be a higher level than 2. You need to like be smart about your abilities. And one of the fun little things about this game is to get spells to junction to things, you have to find draw points around the map, which there are very few. Or The main way to get them is to draw from monsters. Which, as John described, 
some I mean I sat in battles for like 20 plus minutes just sitting there drawing spells from monsters so I could get like a hundred of one spell and then junction it later and it was so boring and repetitive and terrible but there's grinding in every video game like what do you think makes the drawing so much worse is it that you're stuck in one battle doing it for a long time I I guess um I I guess because at, at least with I don't know. Like when you're grinding with random battles in another JRPG. Yeah. If the battles are different, you are at least having to make decisions. If I mean if the if the battles are constructed well, if the game is constructed well, you're having to make decisions within each individual battle to ensure victory in that battle. Like they shouldn't all be cakewalks at that point. Sure. In my opinion for a good game. So in this game though, it is quite literally just standing there in a battle where you most likely can't die and just hitting the same button over and over again. Okay, that's valid. Um, so, well, so far, <clears throat> we haven't really said a lot that the, the the listener, you know, may not already know about Final Fantasy VIII if they've played it. But what I did is, this is, this is the last 60 hours of my video game life, <laughs> because, yes, it took me 60 hours, is I, I've, I've wanted to do this for years, John. I've wanted to do this for, like, 10 years. Because I, I know how the stat system works, and... Bosses don't give you experience points. So outside of a few uh, a few battles that you're obligated to do, outside of those, you're not going to gain experience points if you don't want to. And I know you can get to the end of the game at a very low level, like you mentioned. So I got to the end of the game, and I beat it with a level 11 Squall, a level 11 Zell, and a level 10 Renoa. And that's the party I beat the entire game with. You said level, uh, like, 10 and 11? Yeah, 10 and 11. Okay. Yeah, had I been more hardcore about it, I probably could have done 8 or 9, but I didn't really start to hardcore level and avoid experience points until a few battles into the game. Anyway, the point is, it still took me 60 hours to beat the game, and I'm not sure it made it more fun to break the game. And there's some other stuff that I did this playthrough that I've never done before that kind of changed the entire experience of the game for me. Um... First, I want to talk about the low-level thing. So, we we both mentioned that you have to draw from enemies endlessly to get a lot of spells. Well, I did that, and it was interesting to me because, you know, I got to disc 2 and then disc 3, and I'm looking at my hours, and I was blazing through every every boss battle, okay? Like, my first chance I got, I taught one of my Guardian Forces the Encounter None ability, so I was having no random battles. Okay. So, I, I was... I was, I was you know, avoiding any enemies except the bosses, who I was just plowing through for the most part because I was really powerful, you know? Like, I had I had three or 4,000 hit points when the enemies were still doing, like, 100 or 200 damage per attack for their strong attacks, you know? Like, I, I, was, I was invincible, ostensibly. And uh, I found that it wasn't a big time saver because um, even though I was avoiding all these battles and kind of quote-unquote blazing through the game, I still had to put in so much time at the beginning of the game teaching my Guardian Forces things and carding enemies to teach abilities and doing some of the minute things. It didn't save me that much time. And in order for me to maintain that low of a level, I had to actively perform certain actions that would prevent me from gaining experience points. And, like, I would have to reset the game if I accidentally won a battle somehow. So, um, like, there's a scene where you escape from a prison, and you have to fight two or three battles, or you're just fighting guards. Well, in order to avoid getting experience points, 
at all from those enemies, you have to petrify them without doing any damage. So, like, if Renoa's dog counterattacked, or if somebody got berserked or confused and attacked the enemy, I could end the battle, even if I were able, was able to petrify them, I could end that battle and still gain experience points. So, it almost became tedious to, like, maintain the low level, if that makes sense. Yeah, so why did you continue to do it? I don't know, because it taught me things. I, I, no, I don't know. I, it was an experiment, you know, because I, 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 I've been wanting to do this forever. And I'm like, what would it be like to get to Ultimisia at level 10 and level 11? And when I finally got to her, it was just boring, <laughs> you know? I, uh, Zell did maybe 50,000 damage with his limit breaks. Uh, Squall was doing 40 or 50. I mean, everyone was just doing such insane damage. And I'm, I don't mean four or 5,000. I mean 40 or 50,000 because they're chains of attacks. I, I was just, I wrecked her. I even beat Ultima Weapon, who had... At level 10. Yeah, level 10 and 11, who had over a million hit points. Okay. Now, I had to use, I had to, I mean, you had to be strategic, because he actually did kill me several times before I was able to beat him, but I was able to break the game with items that you refine from cards, which I'll get into for in a second, um, and do that. But I just thought that was interesting, because it wasn't really, to me... You know, when all is said and done, it still took me 60 hours to beat the game. I wasn't allowed to really flaunt my strength except in boss battles. And um, I don't know. It, it wasn't so much worth it. So I would maybe advise if, if, if one of our listeners wants to, you know, if you are thinking about doing a low-level run, maybe just do it to a certain degree or don't be so hardcore about it, you know? Because I would have Odin show up and kill an enemy, and I would reset the game. Because even though I'd been playing for a half hour without saving, I didn't want those experience points. So I was, like, obsessive-compulsive about it. I mean, this doesn't sound like fun to me. (laughs) No. No. So, um, that's what I got from the leveling. Now, the other thing that I was obsessive-compulsive about was getting all of the cards in Triple Triad. And you remember Triple Triad, right? Sure. Okay, Triple Triad is quite possibly the most fun Final Fantasy minigame, I think. It's pretty good. I mean, even with Blitzball. Blitzball's very good. Blitzball. <laughs> you think Blitzball's better than Triple Triad? Blitzball could have been a game by itself. <laughs> Blitzball should have been a game by itself. Blitzball was quite good. But Blitzball was quite good. From Final Fantasy X, Blitzball was quite good. Uh, Tetra Master from Final Fantasy IX was terrible. I enjoyed that one as well. Why? How? That's it's not important. It is not important. But anyway, um, so in Final Fantasy VIII, in order to get all the best cards, you have to perform the Queen of Cards side quest, and that is quite possibly the most frustrating, horrible, awful side quest in the history of video games. Have you ever done it? Was there? There might have been some hyperbole in that statement. No. No, there, there might have been. N- no, no, no there's hyperbole. A, there's a good chance. It, okay, it is one of the most tedious side quests in video games. No, I never actually did it. I didn't really get into Tetra Master. I, I realized it was a pretty good game. No, Triple Triad. Triple, I'm talking about I'm Triple sorry. Triad. I'm sorry, Triple Triad. Mm-hmm. Like, I never, I never, I got into it a tiny bit in the game, but I didn't really, I didn't, when I did play it, I did not mm-hmm. 
pursue that particular side quest. I didn't go down that road because I wasn't in love with the side or the mini game. Okay. So I, I never actually did that. I don't know what it is. Okay. Well, you remember um, when I was reviewing Final Fantasy Airborne Brigade when I talked about how I liked collecting things? Sure. Yeah, that took me over a little bit in uh, in uh, in Triple Triad. Um, it took me over a little bit, but like. It's it's such a love hate relationship, John, because like I liked playing the game, I liked winning cards, I liked winning things, I liked getting cards because you can refine those cards, you can you can transform those cards into super super powerful items later in the game, and um, it that also breaks the game in addition to <laughs> the already broken magic system and stat system. Um, so there is a payoff, and I I did invest a lot of time and everything into it, but. I don't know. What is it about Blitzball that made you play Blitzball for 30 or 40 hours that is different than maybe that game? Well, I thought the game... I thought Blitzball was a very deep game. I mean, there were five different positions that you could deck out with, I don't know, at least 50 different abilities that you you had to get uh, that you could then assign to your characters... Um, there were multiple stats per character. Um, the game, the game was very deep. Like there was a lot to that mini game. I feel like Triple Triad is about as deep, but maybe a little less so when you mention all the positions and, and things like that. But I felt like Blitzball, it kind of reached a peak, you know, maybe two thirds into your career. It just got so easy because you were just wrecking everybody. You know, I'd win like 13 to nothing. And that never happens in Triple Triad, uh, is the point I'm trying to make. Because they have all these rules that somewhat make the game unplayable. It borders on... it's They're just complicated enough to where you're like, okay, basically no matter what I'm going to do, the CPU is going to screw me. But at the same time, it's like you know that if you put a lot of en- energy and effort and thought into it and you really like study the board and everything and you kind of look at it closely, you can figure out how to win. Almost every time, it's like. Well, uh, I think the, but I think the 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 reason why they have rules like that, and that's the reason why uh, collectible games in the real world, not just in video games, but co- but collectible games in the real world have more have complex rules for weaker cards and units to win, because otherwise you would just get the best of everything, and then you would always win. Yeah. And that would be stupid. That would be stupid. Right. Well, yeah, because, I mean, then what would be the point of somebody, what would be the point of a newbie entering a collectible game and playing it? Or a noob, if you will. There wouldn't be. That makes sense. Um, but in that respect, I think Triple Triad is, is easily the strongest mini game as a whole in Final Fantasy VIII. It may be the strongest aspect of the entire game because it's incredibly well-constructed. It's incredibly well-balanced. I desperately wish somebody would develop a, a mobile app for Triple Triad because I would play it with people. I don't know, maybe you wouldn't. I actually have physical Triple Triad cards that I bought at Gen Con like eight years ago. You know, there's actually probably some similar games you can get uh, as far as apps go. Uh, maybe, you know, not exactly Triple Triad, but I, I bet there are. I bet there are some other collectible type card games where you can buy booster packs. Yeah, probably similar, but oh, that nostalgia value. Sure. Just saying. Anyway, I didn't want to do an insanely comprehensive, thorough review of Final Fantasy VIII, but I, it was really interesting to me, like, how I perceived the game. And, you know, I was doing this Queen of Cards side quest, and at one point I'm just like, I hate this so much. 
Like, I'm missing two cards from my entire collection. Of course I need to get them, but it's so frustrating. But it's one of those collecting things where you do something, you force yourself to do something that you hate doing just to finish that little bit of extra collecting, right? Um, and I thought it was really interesting, that whole low-level power leveling thing. You know, the game probably would have been a lot more fun if I had just stopped caring on disc 3 and then just blown through all the enemies and, and not cared about experience points and things like that. Um, do you ever watch speedruns on YouTube? Uh, I do not. I, I mean, I, I've, I've watched Uplays, but I have never watched, like, speedruns. Uh, I did. I'm sorry. I watched the the ridiculous Super Mario 64 speed run that borders on uh, art. What? How long is that? How fast is that? An hour and a half. He gets 120 stars. You watch the whole thing? Yeah, he gets it in an hour and a half or something like that. I mean, it's it's outrageous. Well, I need to share one with you, and I'll also post a link um, on our Tumblr post when we when we post this episode. Okay. Uh, I'll post a link to the 22 ish minute. Ocarina of Time speed run. It's under a half hour. Ocarina of Time start to finish. I assume there's a pretty there's some pretty good glitching going on there to make that work. I mean, there's a pretty substantial glitch. Yes, um, just, just one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. See, that's why you need to watch this this Mario one because it's it's constant. Oh well, I mean, there there's one major one in the Zelda one. There are a lot of smaller ones as well. But I I would like to watch that Mario sixty four one. So I'll get the link from you and we'll we'll post that on our Tumblr post. Sure. Um, which is fantastic. But I didn't mean to to digress a whole lot, but. You know there's a huge speed gaming community. I mean, whether you watch the videos or not, there, yeah. there's a huge movement. It's like its own thing. It's crazy, um, which is very odd to me. Uh, but I, I now that – I guess what I – the reason I played through this game this way is this was my first foray into a break-the-game experience when I'm taking something that I know and love and playing it absolutely not the way I, I don't think – the developers intended it to be played. Sure. Um, the idea behind the low-level run is to make it a speed run, but I took my time and then got careful with some things and turned it into less of a speed run and more about perfection, more about just staying at a low level. And uh, boy, it wasn't as fun as I thought it would be. Uh, and I think that it's when you take anything in gaming that intensely and that seriously and that, like, you know, you've got to be, like, rigorous and regimented, then it's less of a game and more of... Um, work more work but but at the same time there's that payoff you get at the end like I was really really excited and proud of myself when I finished the game and I took a bunch of screenshots and I'll, I'll post them somewhere soon on our Tumblr page but I took a bunch of screenshots and uh, you know like oh level 11 and I have 93,000 or 9300 hit points you know and and si- and 60 hours for me that's a tough that's a tall order it is a tall order it is a tall order um honestly I'm not gonna lie over 10 hours was probably the card game I would bet probably 15 hours that that was the card game I mean that's legitimate I probably spent the first time I ever perfectly played Final Fantasy X, I easily spent that in Bloodsball. Oh, yeah. Easily. Bloodsball is like 20 or 30, isn't it? Yeah, if not longer. To master, so, yeah. yeah. But again, that's a little bit different. But anyway, I, I my takeaway from all of this basically is that if you're going to break a game, like, I don't know. I want people to, like, comment or email us and, and let us know, like, what they think about this game-breaking stuff because I, I find it interesting now that I've done it. Um, and the other thing that, that did surprise me is, you know the main character of Final Fantasy VIII, the beloved Squall Leonhardt? Mm-hmm. He, he's emo, right? He's an emo teenager that's 
kind of kind of shitty for a main character. Yeah. You know, you're not really attached to him. But yeah. I, I was really surprised. And maybe it was because I was too young the first time we played it. I was surprised at the amount of humor in Final Fantasy VIII. Because there's actually quite a bit. They don't take themselves seriously at a lot of times. They're making sarcastic comments about each other. Uh, Renoa making fun of Squall is probably... Made me laugh out loud almost throughout the entire game. Because she knows Squall is all lame and emo and stuff. And she'll, like, impersonate him. And it's actually it's actually quite funny. So they, they do humor in the game surprisingly well. You know, for me, considering that when you look back at the game, everyone just thinks it's kind of like Doom and Gloom doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And, uh, you know... And it still doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? And here is the final thing that I want to say about Final Fantasy VIII. And I really want to hear... A little bit of your thoughts on this. Have you heard the Squall is Dead theory? No. Keep in mind, it's been a really long time since I've played this game. I barely even remember the story. I just remember there <laughs> being like a, an, uh, like this, this part with an orphanage that just was the worst thing <laughs> I can remember in, in video game storytelling up to that point. And I was, like, I was like 10 when that game came out and I recognized that it was bad. So. Yeah, and this is what I want to get at. So this is this is very interesting. You're absolutely right. It made very little sense. And you get to that part in the game, and you're like, what the hell is going on? So when we were younger, when we were little, and we were playing this game, I distinctly remember at the end of disc one, right, you try and assassinate a sorceress, and basically you fail. Sorry for the spoiler there. Minor spoiler. You know, over ten years after the game came out. But Squall is standing on top of a float, basically, in a parade. And he gets impaled through the chest. You see it enter his chest and come out his back. He gets impaled fully by three giant ice shards, right? Straight mm-hmm. through. And he falls off the float. And it kind of fades to black. And this is in the middle of like a huge parade. There's this giant evil sorceress that's all this stuff. Disc two. Insert disc two. You wake up in a prison cell. Squall says, how did I get here? And nothing else is said about how he got to that prison cell for the entirety of the game. And it didn't make sense. I I remember when I was little, I thought to myself, like, he's dead. Like, he got killed. How the hell am I still alive? Mm Mm-hmm. Something very similar happens at the end of Disc 2, where uh, two gardens, so garden is basically Hogwarts. Actually, I was surprised how much the game reminded me of Hogwarts. Balam Garden is basically Hogwarts from a long time ago. They teach people how to be magic, use magic and, and fight and stuff. More of a military Hogwarts. But your garden becomes mobile, which is another ridiculous plot development. And another garden becomes mobile, and they, they both basically fight each other. Picture two, um, I don't know two towers that can hover and move and they crash into each other and they're fighting. Well, at the end of disc two, there's this climactic battle in which the two gardens are clashing into each other and fighting. And there's basically a a small scale war going out. And then you fight the sorceress and then you fall unconscious. And at the beginning of disc three, everything's fine. You wake up in your dorm room. I don't know how the war ended. I don't know like where everybody went. I don't know where, the bad guys went, I don't know what's happening, okay? So even as a little kid, I had no idea what was going on. I'm like, how does how any of this make sense? Like, this does not compute. Well, there is a theory, and I think it's got... I, I know it has its own website. I think it's squallisdead.com. But there's an actual game theory that Squall dies at the end of disc one. Like, legit, he's dead. And discs two, three, and four are, like kind of a last-minute construction in his mind 
rationalizing like what the rest of his life would be and kind of how it would play out. And there's a lot of substantial support for this theory from the fact that disc one remains somewhat seated in reality. And then like right at the beginning of disc two, basically a cartoon character runs into your cell block. Like it's, it's that jarring. And I felt that jarring when I was playing through it this time, because I read the theory before I started playing through the game and I'm playing through and I had that in mind. And I'm like, all right, when disc two hits, I'm going to pay close attention. And I didn't even have to be paying attention. It just started to not make sense. Like you said, with the whole orphanage thing, like, and it just got more outlandish and more outlandish. And my entire gaming experience changed because for all of discs two, three, and four, all I could think was Squall is dead. Like, this is all just kind of a fantasy. So, there's that. Your thoughts? Eh. <laughs> I think it's probably just bad storytelling. <laughs> but it is cool to see people come up with, theory, you know, like theories like that. That's always kind of fun. I kind of support the theory. Uh, there are like a couple minor moments. What what kind of gets me, the only problem I have with the theory is having spent 40 to 50 hours on those three discs, after which Squall supposedly dies, the world is so immersive and so well-constructed and so cohesive, and the card game and everything, that they build such a good, you know, alternate reality for you to live in this game that that takes me out of the moment of thinking that this is all just a dream or a vision because it's too thorough. You know what I yeah, mean? Final Fantasy X was the exact way. In fact, that is one of the that is one of the things that Final Fantasy has done very well since since then. What's that? Create these big immersive worlds. Oh God, yeah. Because Final Fantasy X was was a very very similar construction. Like that world was. I mean, and that was a dream a dream world. Um, but that. That was an incredible world. Final Fantasy XII was, I think, probably one of their most immersive worlds because the world is quite literally open to you from the moment you start that game. You can go anywhere in the world from the start of that game, which is pretty cool. And then Final Fantasy XIII, too, is is also a very large world, but very linear. So they kind of strayed from that a little bit. But whatever. I think it's probably just bad storytelling. I think had that been the actual intention of the designers that we would have heard by now. The game's been around forever and there's been plenty of postmortems on it. So I I mean I we would have heard if that was in fact the truth. That being said, it's kind of cool that you can make a logical case for that. Interesting. Okay. And you think the designers would have come out and said that by now cuz it cuz Nintendo released Ab- the Zelda storyline just like in the last year and that's been going on for 25 years. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that that's that doesn't mean that they've had that written down the entire time they've been making Zelda. That could mean that they just went back and like retconned it. That makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, video game storytelling is not movie storytelling. There's not a Quentin Tarantino out there that is trying to keep his his ideas hidden, and, and there's not a David Lynch who's trying to leave things <laughs> open to interpretation. And there wasn't back then either. I mean, it's just we're not that mature of a medium yet, so. If there was something cool, you know, I'm, I'm, pro- I'm not, okay, so there could be, but <laughs> in my experience, there's a pretty good chance there's not, and there wasn't back then. So if somebody had a great idea like that, a, a developer would take credit for that, I think. A developer would come out and say, yeah, this is, this was our intention, and this is, you know, it's, it's cool that you finally figured it out. You, you got us, guys. But I don't think that that was the case. I think it was just a relatively poorly written story. 
Wow. And you don't think, like, the original writer... Because usually, in the end credits of the Final Fantasy series, you get, like, written by, and it's just one guy kind of wrote the whole thing, isn't it? No. I don't think so. I think they're... I think they're pretty commonly multiple writers on them. I, I mean, there's always a lead, but that's... I think that's how they... That's how they make anything. Okay. Maybe I'm thinking of one specific Final Fantasy game. I will do some research and they follow were, up in the next podcast on that. They were probably uh, one writer in the earlier Final Fantasies that had less complex stories. But then once you start getting into these longer stories, uh, they re- they're going to require more than one. Yeah, it might have been six that I was thinking of. but Because I, I, I pretty dis- I think <laughs> I remember seeing in the end credits of a game written by, and it was a Final Fantasy. But you're right. It could have been four or six or something much less... Yeah, like I said, the, the, I mean, it, it's cool that you can make a logical case for this kind of thing, but I really don't think that that I mean, just we've just gotten to the point where you get a game like Walking Dead, where you get a story that is on par with decent movies or uh, uh, Bioshock, right? And I mean, that's been around for that's been around for since two thousand six. But yeah, I mean, it, it the, stories like that have not been been being made for very long I got so. you. okay well I, I will stop the Final Fantasy 8 discussion here but I, I would really like to strongly encourage our listener to go to um, squallisdead.com or whatever that website is uh, and just look at the theory because it's, it's very interesting there are a couple other theories out there um, there's actually a theory that uh, Renoa is Ultimisia uh, who what is... this should tell you is that the story was not written well because people have to come up with theories to explain it I mean, if if anything, that's that's what it should tell you. No, I don't know about that. I mean, the Renoa being Ultimacia theory is just kind of a random. It, it, it's like Gogo in Final Fantasy VI. Like, who is Gogo? It's it's not bad storytelling. It's just kind of something that's there that gamers want to find something behind. I yep. mean, in in some of these, the Squall is Dead theory. I think I think you're right. I, I totally get what you're saying. The Squall is Dead theory encompasses the entire storyline of the game. So yeah, that's basically calling out poor storytelling. But but there are a couple other minor theories that are just like, what if Renoa is Ultimisia from like an alternate dimension and she goes crazy and becomes a sorceress to try to reverse time to go back to Squall and save him from dying. It actually ties in with the Squall is Dead theory. And there's a couple uh, there's a couple other ones like that, but the, the main one is, is the Squall is Dead one. But I would encourage our, our listener to go to that. And I'll post some pictures of my experience and um, I'll try and figure out who wrote all these Final Fantasy games in the future. But I'm, I'm glad that you touched on the immersiveness of, like, the worlds, because I think that's... I think... Uh, I never really thought of that, but that is really what, dri- you know, drives me back to JRPGs, which obviously we're both big fans. But our, if our listener has listened to a lot of our podcasts and they're wondering, like, God, why did John and Cody have such a hard-on for JRPGs? Like, I think that's a big part of the reason why, like emotionally or whatever, we feel kind of connected to him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, I, and, and, uh, this'll be a good, uh, segue into what I'm going to talk about Yes. because I'm going to talk about Mass Effect three, which is a, an American made, I mean, it's American made. It is a Western style <laughs> role playing game. You could say American made. No, because it's, it's Western style. I think it was actually made in Bioware Montreal, so it's, it's Canadian made. Oh, yeah. That's not American. Like, that's what I'm trying to say. So it's a, you know, it's a Western RPG, but, uh, or Edmonton, one of the Bioware studios in Canada, though, I'm pretty sure. So I'll preface this by saying I think I found my game of the year. What? I'm just, All right. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No. 
it is not. Um, but it is it is good. So, listener, you may remember. I think what was it like the second episode that we did? I talked about the multiplayer. It was early on, but yeah, yeah. So this game's been around for I think since March or April of of last year, and I uh, I, I bought it day it came out digitally, which it was one of like the first games I can remember where you could uh, on on a major console where you could buy the digital version day of, which was awesome. I thought that was very cool. Really. Yeah, I bought it because I bought it on my PlayStation 3. So, um, bought it the day it came out with the intention of playing the single player. Uh, and I, and you can go back and listen to the episode, but basically what happened was I had like a half an hour to play it, and I didn't want to start the game because I knew I was going to want to sit down for long periods of time. So I just dabbled in the multiplayer, and uh, I played like one match of the multiplayer, and I quite literally got hooked, and, and the next 40 hours of the game for me was played all multiplayer. And I... Literally paid, played 40 hours of multiplayer and then shelved the game. <laughs> Are you so serious? I did. I never actually played the single player. Why that was not? I, because another game came along. I can't remember if it was Final Fantasy 13 2 or, so, or that I started to play. Or something. Something came along that I wanted to play instead. Um, so anyway, I, you know, I shelved the game and I finally got back to it. I don't remember what, what, uh, what made me decide that this was going to be the next one I played, but. Um, Oh, you know what it was? I beat Lollipop Chainsaw, and I was like, I need to play something a little more substantial now. Like, that was good, mm-hmm. but it was so light that I want something a little more, a little meatier now. And I just remember how good Mass Effect 2 was. I was thinking about how much fun I had with that game, and I was like, all right, you know what? I think it's finally time to go try out this Mass Effect 3 thing, see uh, how I feel about it after how great Mass Effect 2 was for me. So, point is, I started Mass Effect 3, and... I'm a little disappointed. What? Yeah, well, I mean, I I don't think I'm as disappointed as some of the other uh, the other people that played this game. I think there are a lot of people who are ravenously invested in the Mass Effect series. Um, I think I think they did a good enough job of storytelling with between one and two that um, I, I mean it it I can I was very invested after Mass Effect two. Um, I was more invested after Mass Effect 1. Mass Effect 2 turned it so much more into an action game for me that I, I lost a little bit of that that kind of passion for it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I still really liked it. It was still a really like pulpy, uh, stereotypical sci-fi story, but written well, like a, a well-written pulpy sci-fi story. Yeah. Um, so, so I started Mass Effect 3, and uh, if you know anything about the Mass Effect series they didn't uh, they they basically set mass effect 2 uh at the end there is the big bad the reapers have finally started their big invasion okay um they are invading earth and they the way the story works is every 50,000 years there is a purging of the entire universe where the reapers come they purge all organic uh life uh not inorganic life all organic life off of the entire universe um and they make wave except for some of the lesser civilizations that are just starting. And then those civilizations then grow up and 50,000 years later, they do it again and they, they just do it over and over again. Um, and you, you kind of know why, but you don't really know why. Um, <laughs> Cause why not? Right. I, that's just, that is just what's going on in the world. That is, that is the way this universe works. Yeah. Um, but there's all this great intergalactic politics stuff uh, throughout the entire series that 
is really the it's it's really the stuff that makes it great. I mean it, it it's just it's just politics in space, and then occasionally you're off exploring these you know these unknown rocks with crazy aliens on them, um, and it's it's good. Like all that stuff is really good. Like, like I said, pulpy sci-fi action stuff. Yeah. So they have taken a lot of the story elements out of the game. Um, one of the things Bioware always does in their role-playing games is have these these dialogue wheels and dialogue trees. Right. Um, where you can kind of ask a lot of questions of of characters when you're doing them, and they they usually they usually help you shape your character's experience because more often than not you are uh, you are deciding what your character is saying based on what you would say in that situation. I think that's how most people play these games. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they've taken out a lot of this dialogue. Like there's just not a lot of dialogue anymore. Um, and when there is dialogue, there is no longer really any shades of gray in the dialogue. Um, the way these wheels are set up, there's it's basically set up into you know it's a circle, and then there are six different spots around the circle that there will be different options on. Um, it'll be upper left, middle left, lower left, upper right, middle right, lower right. The way it's set up in the Mass Effect universe is if you want to progress the conversation to uh, kind of the next um, uh, the next point to keep the story moving, you go things on the right. If there's anything on the left, it's informational only and it's just for flavor. So if you want to learn more about things, if there's stuff on the left you do things on the left of the wheel. If you want to progress through the conversation, you go to the things on the right of the wheel. Mm-hmm. On the right of the wheel, also, uh, there are Paragon and Renegade options. And that was, from the start of the series, these were concepts that they put in. Paragon are, if you're playing your character as, you can think of it as like a good guy, but it's basically somebody who is going to follow the galactic laws to kind of get things done. Yeah. Um, and those will always appear in the upper right. If you want to play a renegade who is basically just out to save Earth, just out to save the human race at any cost, it's the lower right options. And there always used to be a middle option where if you like didn't feel comfortable with the um, uh, the bi- that binary choice, there'd be a middle option you could pick that made your character not kind of such a this paladin style character or, or a dick. But they've. <laughs> eliminated almost completely eliminated the middle option what i think there were two in the entire game in this 40 hour game there were like two times where the there was a middle option for me to pick and it was never it was never something i wanted to pick so i never like i lost when i played those first two games i really felt like i was shaping my commander shepherd like commander commander shepherd for me was me um i didn't spend the time to like make his face look like me or anything like that i'm not into that um, uh, but I felt like his decisions, his character was, was me, but I did, I just did not feel like I had that option at all in this game because they had eliminated the options I would have picked. Um, so that's a total bummer. So it was that substantial of, I mean, I know obviously one of the most important parts of Mass Effect is that choice, but it was, it was that substantial of a problem with the absolutely. dialogue? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. No, it, it totally changed the the flavor of the game. Um, that being said, there just wasn't as much dialogue. Like, there's not as much dialogue in this game. And while the combat is good, they have refined the combat to the point where the multiplayer kept me hooked for 40 hours before I even played the single player. That's how much I like this combat. Mm-hmm. So th- they've done a good job with the combat, but that is not what I came to this game for. 
I want if I want the perfect third person shooter, I'm going to go to Gears of War. For me, that is the tightest and perfect third person cover based shooting. Um, this I came to this for the pulpy sci fi story story, and then there was some like flavor combat on top of that. It was like the icing on the cake for me. Yeah, yeah. They've just totally changed the. Uh, the the paradigm of of the game. The game is now all about action. In fact, there will be there will be points in the game where uh, the objectives will flash on the screen, and the objective will literally just be survive. So for the next three minutes, you are going through waves of enemies, and I I can't remember that ever being a thing. Like. Like you're just waiting for an evac, for instance, mm-hmm. and you're you are quite you're just standing there, sitting behind cover and killing stuff. Where I, you were always working, even in Mass Effect Two, where they started to turn it more into an action game, you were still always working towards an objective. So this this combat, I just feel like they have they have completely overemphasized the combat uh, and scaled back on some of the things that I, I really liked the most about the series. Um, there, there was something to give you another example of a change they've made. Uh, there was scanning, scanning systems for minerals in the second game. And you would go into systems, you would, uh, go to a planet and you would start scanning it. Right. Yeah. I remember in the first game, it was a little tedious, right? I heard they fixed that in the second game. They did. It was, it was tedious in the first game In the second game. Um, I, I guess you could call it tedious, but it also felt like. You didn't have to do it. Yeah. And it it also felt like something that it, it was kind of relaxing. It kind of like you kind of zoned out to it a little bit. And it made sense in the universe. Like you were launching these probes um, onto the planet to find things, right? Yeah. Well, now you do these you, – you go into a system and you do a mass scan and it will find one thing on a planet. And you'll go to that planet and uh, if – You'll scan the planet and you'll send a probe down into the one area. It'll show you the exact area you need to send the probe down. You'll send it there and you'll find one thing. And that'll be it. And the thing is not necessarily important to the story or the game. It's just, it, it doesn't seem as immersive. There are, now that the Reapers are attacking, there are systems that are occupied by Reapers. Um, and, and this is a baffling, this is a baffling decision to me. So you'll get into, you'll get into a system and it'll be occupied by Reapers, but your system come, or your ship comes equipped with a stealth system that you, so you can't be seen. So you'll, you'll, if you get into the system and you start to scan, the Reapers will become aware of your presence and a, a little bar will fill up at the bottom of the screen. And if the bar gets filled at the bottom of the screen, the Reapers will come into the system. And then you have to leave the system. And if you leave the system, the Reapers stop chasing you. If the Reapers, and you know, you're just a little ship flying around a screen, there's no gameplay to it other than that. If the Reapers converge on your location on this little chip flying around the screen, you you literally get a game over screen. It just says game over. What? And you reload. So if you scan a system and there are Reapers there, then they will kill you? No, no, no. Because you have a chance to run away. And the Reapers, the Reapers go real slow. Like I never got, I, I, the only time I got caught was when I intentionally got caught to see what would happen. I was, I was like, well, what's going to happen if these Reapers actually catch me? And it is literally just game over, reload. I was like, are you kidding me? Like <laughs> the best you can do, you know? I just it felt rushed. I guess like that, like that feels rushed. 
going back to like all, all this talking to people like like that was that's that's the thing like the talking to people yeah. is the thing like well to get quests in this game it's it's creepy like you'll go to the citadel which is the main city and in fact it is the only city now there aren't other cities you can go to anymore it is the only city you go to and instead of talking to people to get quests you will walk around the citadel and you'll overhear conversations and a quest will appear in your quest log. So it's like your Commander Shepard and the Reapers are attacking. So these fucking Reapers are attacking. Like the Earth is doomed. <laughs> but you overhear this little Volus guy saying, we really could use this pillar of the people. It's very important in our religion. So you're going to take some time out of your important Commander Shepard life to go scan this one system to find this pillar of religion. This Volus. And you bring it back. And the Volus doesn't say, what the fuck were you doing over, overhearing my conversation? Which is what I would say <laughs> if it showed up with the thing I was saying I needed. He just says, well, thank you very much. Here's $10,000. <laughs> I mean, that, yeah, like that's like the kind of, that's, that's, that's the way the quest system is now working in the game. Let's say like the side quest system is working. So it just, it just, things don't feel right. Now I will say the uh, the end of the game. I didn't. I don't know if you remember uh, any of the controversy around this game throughout the course of this year, but there was a big controversy about the end of the game. Oh my God! Yes, I was going to ask you about that controversy about the end of the game. That Bioware went back and changed the end of the game. That's how upset people were. But I heard I heard not much because well because you must have just played. Did you see the old ending or? did not i only saw the expanded ending i've I've heard what's in the old ending and i guess they didn't change much but what they did was they uh expanded a lot on the information you get Mm -hmm. so you learn a lot more um because there's a there's a huge info dump at the end of the game so i only saw the extended ending but i will say that i was satisfied with the extended ending and that info dump that i'm talking about at the end of this game i thought was phenomenal i thought it was uh, it was surprising to me. It was well told. It was an interesting story, and it was uh, like the the kind of like the ge- the generic feeling of the this like pulpy sci fi story. Like, there's no other way it could have ended when you with a with your stereotypical sci fi hero and story. There's just no other way this game could have ended. So I was way satisfied with the ending. I I loved this these new. Um, Kind of these new ideas that they came up with. I will say there was a uh, there was a, a piece of DLC that came out that I downloaded as well um, called Leviathan, and it is the most important piece of story in the Mass Effect series. And it's in DLC, which pisses me off because. Uh, and I only downloaded this because I overheard it on other podcasts talking about how great this DLC was. So I, I downloaded it. It integrates beautifully into the story. It just pops up as a mission. It, it doesn't even say it's the DLC. You just you go explore the side quest, and it's like, oh shit, this is this is the DLC. Um, but it is it is the most important piece of story. It explains where the Reapers come from, and it is the only way you find out where the Reapers come from. So. It, like it, it, it. To me, uh, my knowledge of the Mass Effect universe, it was the most important thing to me. And being walled behind this piece of DLC, I think is uh, it's inexcusable. It's inexcusable. Like P- 
people are are spending a lot of money to play your game. This like this is this this is the most important part of your universe. Like y- y- it is dishonest to make people pay more money to find out this information for themselves. You can always go watch it or read about it, whatever. That's not as fun because it's a very it's a very well made piece of DLC. Well, but um, you you mentioned like the universe is just kind of the way it is, and the purge and all that stuff is because of the reapers. Is is it that important of information? For uh, okay, so for people that care about this universe, it is. Yeah, it explains where the reapers come from and why they do what they do. And I mean the the motivation of your enemy then becomes a lot more than just they do this every 50,000 years. It's what they do. Like it just, it, I don't know. It just, it is so elucidating to, to the universe that I can't, I can't fathom why they did not put it into the main game other than they just didn't have time. And if that was the case, this DLC should have just been free. Cause I, to me, it is that important. Wow. Yeah, I, I'm I, I am legitimately like it's almost offensive to me that, that they would wall this behind another ten bucks. All that being said, like I said, the pulpiness and just it it's one of the best stories in video games I, I think of when I think of stories in video games. Is it this generation's Star Wars? Um I would it wasn't until this game. Uh before this game, I would have equated it more more to a Star Trek. It's so much more about intergalactic politics in the first game, and a little less so in the second game. Mm-hmm. The third game, it is all action. It is it is Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back in the second game. Um, but in that fir- in that first game, it was really more of a Star Trek st- type, which I, I liked. I liked it a lot. I really did. Um, and I still will always remember these three games uh, and. I will remember kind of the main story beats of all of them. And I will remember my Commander Shepard because my Commander Shepard was very important to me. Like, it, I, I crafted his, uh, his character around how I would have behaved in these situations. So I really, like, kudos to Bioware for creating an experience like that where I can feel that invested in a character, right? Yeah. Now, to pull this back a little bit uh, to our earlier conversation, we were talking about these immersive worlds, right? Mm-hmm. That's something I just I di- I didn't get from this game. Um, and it could be because there wasn't really, like, a world map. Like, in the, f- in the first game, you could fly anywhere. You could land on... on yeah, pretty much any planet. And there would be plenty of planets with just nothing on them except for maybe some mining nodes. There might be, like, um, a Geth base or something on the planet that you could go destroy. But for the most part, there are a lot of just empty planets in the solar system, which I think makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, regardless of whether that's fun or not, you wouldn't have to necessarily explore those. I think it makes sense that there'd be those planets. They totally streamlined all of that in the next two games. So I, I think that may be something, I think that may be the thing that just killed killed the the series for me in terms of it just being the best games on this generation of consoles because if they had kept this huge universe where if i wanted to go explore these empty planets i could have i think i like i would have felt even more connected to the mass effect universe but you go back to games like final fantasy 12 and final fantasy uh 10 and those universes felt huge yeah 
you really did feel like you were in a, a kind of living, breathing world. So uh, I just think that's something that maybe this game missed out on a little bit. I think that they, they strayed away from that because they were trying to appeal to a different segment of the gamer population. Now, that's not bad. That's what you have to do from a business perspective. Right. But it lost me along the way, and it turned, it turned the series into something that I think the series could have been something really, really special. And I think the series just ended up being, being a really good sci-fi story. I mean, I've heard people say, like, this is this generation's Star Wars. And, and when you were talking about the politics and how it's, it's more like Star Trek in content, I feel like when I read this, this generation's Star Wars, that's in terms of, like, cultural impact and what you mentioned earlier, the ravenous audience, like... Is this that big of a thing? Because, you know, like, my friend, our friend Guy has played the first or second Mass Effect, I, th- I think, like, 10 or 15 times. It's like you mentioned, they become just absolutely ravenous. Do you... I would think you would agree Mass Effect 2 is the best of the trilogy? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I've heard that's one of the best games that there is, actually. I mean... It was the, it was the best game of that year by far for me. So you get what I'm saying, but yeah, overall, like... I mean, and I don't need to get into a comparison about Star Wars or whatever, but like, do you think overall it's it's that immersive and and awesome? Like, is it that is it that good? Well, I think it's done a lot for uh, the idea of storytelling in video games, right? Because like this medium is still in such an infant state of storytelling, in my opinion. I mean, it's getting a lot better, but there's still a lot of really bad video game stories. So, I mean, it, it, it has progressed that a lot further, but it's obvious that there's still quite a long ways to go, but yeah, it, it really is that important. I think, um, I think the proof is kind of in the pudding where, uh, this, this is a role playing game, uh, through and through like that is, I th- there is no uh, argument as to what kind of game this is. It's a role-playing game. It's one of the best-selling series of all time. Yeah. You know, 10 years ago, there never would have been a role-playing game that was one of the best role-playing series, or, or one of the best kind of game games of all time. Like, like role-playing games were a niche. Yeah. And I th- this has really... This this game, this series of games has really exploded that genre of games into the market. You know, it's it's a much different style of role playing game than Japanese role playing games that uh, I kind of I think we kind of uh, affiliate ourselves with in terms of what we like. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is still a role playing game, um, and it is still it, it is still story first. Now, I really tried. Not to be in the third game, but it's it still was. I would still argue it it was story first. So um, I, I think it's just kind of exposed a lot of gamers to this idea of stories in video games and the idea that the stories don't have to be shitty. And you, and you wouldn't say that Final Fantasy VII kind of paved the way for that back in uh, the late nineties. Uh, I well, I, I mean, I didn't say that. <laughs> well, you said like ten or so years ago there wouldn't be a role playing game that's commercially successful. But I mean, I remember Seven was quite a breakthrough. I mean, that, you know, that one game of the year, everywhere, everybody was buying it, even if they weren't, like, a JRPG fan. Um, and I'm not saying, like, I'm not trying to get into, like, a, oh, Final Fantasy is better than Mass Effect kind of thing, but um, would you would you compare, I guess... You look back on that story, now that story is bullshit. It's it's just as much... 
it's just as much bullshit as eight story. Like it's, uh, you know, it's, it's dense for the sake of being dense. It's, and it, it, there's plenty of things that don't make sense in it. Just, just like in Final Fantasy VIII, and a lot of that could be from the translation as well, because the translation is shitty on that game as well. It's pretty bad. Okay, so you would say that the story is is much better in this. Yeah, it's it's much much better written. And it, it was funny that you uh, that you mentioned the shitty storyline because when you were talking about how the fans uh, you know petitioned them to change the ending of Mass Effect Three, I wanted to do that with Final Fantasy VII. <laughs> I guess that, uh, it, you know, I didn't see the original ending of the game, but I guess that it, it was more that fans, because they had spent all of this time with these characters and building up the relationships between these characters, and I guess the end of the game uh, didn't, even, didn't even make it clear whether your entire cast of characters lived or died. They didn't even make that clear to the player. Yeah. So... Uh, that was I mean, that's significant to people who have been invested in these characters for so long. I think that's kind of a brave choice, personally, to to kind of make the characters just disappear. I mean, that's especially when people are so invested in it. But people just people aren't expecting people aren't approaching video games uh, the same way they would a movie. I don't think people. Are, are yet in the position where they want to be challenged by video game stories. What do you mean challenged? Like philosophical stuff? I guess when I say challenged, I mean challenged to do something unexpected. To like take, take a, like, a, like, like the way a book like Game of Thrones challenges you where you may be completely invested in this character and then that character dies. Yeah. Oh, all the time. <laughs> right. So uh, I guess I mean challenged in the, in the way that that the the writers don't care just how and they don't care how invested you are in these characters. They're going to tell this story because this is the story they want to tell. It's obvious that that's that our that the people that consume our media are not into that yet because the they convinced the writers to go back and alter their story. Yeah, very interesting. I want to know what was the hooking point for you in the Mass Effect trilogy because I have played maybe six to ten hours of the first Mass Effect game, and I never finished it because I just I never I haven't gotten hooked yet. Oh, I know. I I can tell you right when it was in the first game, um, Bioware was still doing its uh its old form of game making where they would like they always set their games up the same for like from Knights of the Old Republic where you would start the game, there'd be an intro. You would then have three different planets or countries or whatever quests you had to do. And they were the, they were the main quests and there'd be side quests in each of those main quests, but there'd be three main quests you could do. Once the three quests were done, there would be, uh, it would look like a diamond. So you'd, you'd it'd be able to branch out into those three and then they would all converge to one point. And then they would branch out again into another into another three uh, quests you'd have to do in any order you wanted, and then it would converge against to, again to the end of the game. They that was like their standard setup for for games. Um, after you do the first three quests in Mass Effect One, yeah, you go you go to this one planet, uh, and you meet. The first Reaper, who Saren is the the Turian that uh, is is the specter in the first game. That is, uh, he's gone rogue and he's he's 
basically bringing the Geth to destroy planets. Mm-hmm. And you find out that he's being controlled by a Reaper. And in that quest, you meet the Reaper for the first time. And it is epic. Because the Reaper is a fucking ship. Like, a, a giant ship that is alive. And that is has the ability of mind control. And just with the way that the storytelling is done, with the way that their, their codex works, uh, with data entries, um, it, it gives you just this great piece of sci-fi gooey goodness. <laughs> Sp- like, s- spoke to my love of sci-fi. And uh, it was... it was By that part, I was hooked. Okay. And the first time I played the game, Mass Effect 1, I didn't, I didn't beat it. Um, I, I played it for, I think just about as long as you did about six, 10 hours. And then I shelved, I shelved it because I was like, I'm not really that into this all that much, but then I replayed it again when mass effect two came out, I got to that part and I didn't look back since. Well, maybe I need to restart the game and do that. That, that first meeting of the Reapers and, and just realizing exactly what they are, uh, is, is, and, and you don't really know what they are, but I mean, you know, a little bit about them. The, the first time you learn a little bit about them to me was that was it. Like, I fell in love with the universe at that point. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I was just bored one night and was on Xbox Live, and I was like, I need a game to play. So I downloaded the first one. Um, but like I said, yeah, some people have played these games like 10 or 15 times, which is just really crazy to me. But but you, well, now Mass Effect, correct me if I'm wrong, but all, the whole trilogy is not available on PS3, correct? Yeah, the only thing available on PS3, they have a an interactive comic for the first game where you basically make, make the main story decisions um, mm-hmm. so it can carry those decisions further in, into the next two games uh, so so they can build on those in the story Yeah, uh, based on your decisions. And then there's Mass Effect 2 with all of the DLC. You get all of the DLC with it when you get it on PS3 as, and then you, get, you can get Mass Effect 3 on PS3. Okay, um, so when you played Mass Effect 3, had you gone through the whole thing, like starting with the comic and then going into number two and then number three? Because I know every decision you make carries through to the next game, right? I did. I played it Mass Effect 2 four times now because <laughs> I played it twice on Xbox, once on a regular difficulty and once on Insanity, and then I played it once on regular and once on Insanity on PS3. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I really I really like like the world the universe that much how long of a game is it um i mean once you once you're skipping dialogue you can get through it in about 12 to 15 hours oh that's not bad yeah but i mean what it, like if you i and and in my opinion the way to play it the very first time you play it is to, to take your time with everything learn everything you can about the universe because that's what makes the game so good you'll you'll it, it's a 40 to 50 hour easy wow for yeah. the whole trilogy or for each, each one? game oh god in fact, I'd say Mass Effect One is probably the long. It's probably the longest of all of them because of just how much you can explore. Um, that being said, I I don't know if I would go back and, and try to play it if you haven't played it yet. And I that means that goes for anybody, not just you. Um, but if you haven't played Mass Effect yet, the the first game is so antiquated now in the way that it works that it's going to be hard to play. Just period. Um, I don't think I could play it again. But two, do you think I could jump into two? I mean, without having played one easy because because of the way the codex works basically they take every single codex entry that you that you get in the first game and they just dump it into your codex in the second game so it just takes about 15 minutes worth of reading and kind of digesting the information about the world to learn kind of where you're at 
that's my big issue, though, is there is... Didn't I remember this in the first game? There is so much to read. Like, I feel like I'm playing a game and reading a book at the same time. Because every time you, you, like, walk into a new room and suddenly you've got the history of three alien races, you know, like three different minerals that are that are held in the room and like their traditions and you're you're basically reading fake wikipedia entries on races and i guess so the the first game has to set up all of those different races so there's a ton of information there but there's not a lot of new you don't learn a lot of new stuff about the races in in mass effect 2 and 3 and and like about the intergalactic politics because that's all set up in the first game you you learn a lot more about your your enemies uh and about a little bit about the history of the universe in the in mass effect 2 and 3 mm-hmm. and i find those to be a little more interesting i think um that being said that i mean that's what you're coming to this game for that's what you're coming to this universe for you're you're coming to it for these codex entries and just to see how fleshed out of a universe this is. I, I like that, but it, it's, it felt very start and stop to me. You know, if I want to read a book, I'll curl up on the couch with the dance of the dragons. If I want to play a video game, I'll pop in a video game and shoot things. This was like, play a video game, explore for a little bit, then read for like five minutes, then like explore for another 10 seconds and then read for five minutes. And that, it, that was jarring to me. Because I felt like I had to, um, you know, had to read everything. Because, like you said, it's about the story, and I realized that. But at the same time, that's like kind of a problem. Yeah, but there's plenty of role-playing games where you, you're not always fighting. A lot of times, you are stuck in cutscenes getting story. That's true. Cutscenes, though, are one thing. I mean, there's so much information in those codecs. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, you can read it at your own pace too. Like, like you could, you could take it to where. If if an important event happened and you're like, I wonder like why this woman seems like such a bitch, and then you like read around her race, and it turns out that you know her her race has been sterilized by the universe. Uh, I mean that that is good information at that point in time. Like it's not something you don't have to sit there and read every single entry. I would do that because I <laughs> I love this universe, but it's not something that you you'd have to do. You could just kind of take it at your own pace. Yeah, that makes that, that makes sense. Um, but then you said most of the other information is contained in the first game. So let's say I decide to go PS3 with all this stuff, and I get the web com- comic for the first game. Isn't that going to not have as much information? Um, so the the codex entries are all going to be there in the second game. But yes, you will not get as much information out of that webcomic. You'll basically just get the main story beats of the first game. Yeah. But I think that's fine because the second and third games are the superior games in terms of gameplay. Right. They're much more accessible than the first game was. So overall, you think the Mass Effect trilogy is an important series to play? Absolutely. For any gamer. You think that... Two is probably the highlight, but three is worth playing for the most part. Just a little more shooty than the other ones. Especially if you're invested, because like you, uh, for me, I wanted to see how my Commander Shepard story was going to end. I mean, I was so invested in the universe that like I couldn't just leave it hanging. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, I have a Commander Shepard. I'll probably have to make a new one, of course, because I'll have to start the game over again. Because I remember like nothing about it. it. I mean, I do remember that the you know that there were the bad guys and they wanted to destroy the you know, all the organic life in the universe and stuff. And of course, at the start, everybody's like, oh, no, of course, that'll never happen. That's just a fairy tale, which is, you know, famous last words. 
Right. Well, that's, you know, good pulpy sci-fi writing. Like that's very, very pulpy sci-fi writing. I feel like that's been, you know, everything. There's no such thing as magic. There's no such thing as dragons. I would I would highly recommend uh, playing the series, though, since you haven't yet. I really would. Because you can get, I'm sure you can get Mass Effect 2 for 20 bucks with all the DLC. And it, it comes with that webcomic. And I know you can get Mass Effect 3 for 20 bucks used everywhere right now. Oh, so. no, wait. On PS3... So you're saying Mass Effect 2 comes with the webcomic? Right. Oh. Okay. And all of the DLC on PS3. Okay. Yeah, that's that's pretty cheap. <laughs> I was going to say, I'd, I'd kind of like to just do it on Xbox because, I mean, I want it, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to play all three. You know, that's just the way it is. Like, I, the webcomic is great and everything, but oh, I don't know. But then again, I kind of want to play them on PS3 so the graphics are marginally better. So, But see, the problem is you're going to you're going to start one and you're going to – I think you're going to burn out on it because it's it's just not a good game anymore. It's just not. Like, it's that dated to where it's – I mean it, – It is. It really is. John, I just played 60 hours of Final Fantasy VIII. Yeah, but f- – I mean, it's dated in a way where there. I mean, there are bugs that make you restart the game. I mean, that that to me is 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 dated dated in a in a frustrating way, in a way that is very frustrating. I guess. I guess to me, it's different. I will. Uh, I I'll make a decision down the line. I mean, right now I'm in the middle of some other stuff. Uh, lots of other stuff. Less now. I feel like finishing Final Fantasy VIII was like closing a very large chapter, ending a very sig- substantial commitment that I had made. So, yeah. you know, Mass Effect, I, I could see that that happening in my future. Uh, I did want to comment that I know that your Commander Shepard was a male. Whenever I have the option, I always choose to create a female character because I don't want to look at a guy's butt for a whole game. And I hear that uh, the female Commander Shepard is pretty badass. And hot. Uh, yeah, sure. Because, let's face it, I have a much higher chance of being listened to or talked to by a pixelated female than a human female. I think we can all agree on that. I think we can all agree on that as well. And you know, we pl- we started playing Borderlands 2. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, we obviously shouldn't talk about it a ton since this is going to be a pretty epically long podcast. But uh, yeah, you got me to, aka forced me to, buy Borderlands 2 on PS3. I finally wanted to play a game with you. Yeah, yeah, we we're actually playing a game together and the online worked pretty well. The online's been... Perfect so far. We haven't had any problems with it. Well, the first the first time I couldn't see your character, <laughs> which was a weird kind of thing. But it... <laughs> there's a there there are a couple glitches we've run into, but nothing really terrible. Yeah. So uh, I am loving the shit out of it. To be perfectly honest, like I'm I'm loving the finding new guns, and I think I'm equipping a new gun every what twenty minutes that I get to play around with. So, uh, but I you seem me like you're not getting the same kind of enjoyment out of it that I am. Well, we know that you're not a big first-person shooter guy. I'm not, so that's that's why I, I'm kind of surprised that I'm liking it as much as I am. And I think maybe that contributes to why I'm not liking it as much, because I am a first-person shooter guy, right? I played a lot of Halo 2, I played a ton of Halo 3 and Halo Reach, uh, and I've played some Halo 4, and I played a ton of Call of Duty Modern Warfare uh, and Modern Warfare 2 and Modern Warfare 3, um, so I, I'm a first person, sh- I'm not a first person shooter guy, but I, I've got a lot more, ex- you know, a lot of experience doing it. And the things that I find in those games that are missing from Borderlands, like you may not think, you may not know, cause you're like, oh, well, I, I don't play many first person shooters. So I don't, I wouldn't know if it's gone. That um, could be, I mean, it, it seems a little, 
it's it does seem a little janky is not the <laughs> not like the best word, but that's the only word I can think of right now. The like it seems, yeah, like it seems like it's got a, just a little bit of uh, imprecise. It, it's just a little mm-hmm. imprecise, I guess. It feels yeah, it feels a a little rough around the edges. Um, and I and I also played a lot of Left for Dead Two a couple years ago. And it reminds me more of Left 4 Dead 2 than 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 Modern Warfare, or definitely than Halo. Uh, you know, it's obviously got a different art style, and and I really it's growing on me. I'm starting to like the art style quite a bit. It's very like Okami like, which is awesome always. Mm-hmm. So you know, we can talk about that more in the later podcasts. But things like when you get hit by a bullet in all the other games that I've played, there will be some kind of indicator as to what direction it's coming from, and I can't exactly describe it you know in an articulate way because it's just you just kind of know you know you're just reacting to what's on the screen but i always seem to know all right when i get hit i can turn around this much and that's where the enemy is and in borderlands 2 i've been shot at so many times and not had any idea where the bullets are coming from and that's so funny to me because i like they have that bullet indicator with the arrow telling you where the shot's coming from and there there are red dots on your mini-map, so, like, I've never had a problem. And I, I, to be fair, I was barely using the mini-map. I really, really dislike the placement of the mini-map. I'm always used to it being in the lower left corner, or lower right-hand corner. I I think it's, it's been consistent across every first-person shooter I've ever played, that it's, and I know it's never been in the top right corner. Uh, That, like, really bothers me, and it's too small for me. I've got a 50-some-inch TV, like, and... And uh, the minimap is very, very tiny. Sure. Very tiny. Granted, I don't have, like, an LED TV. It's not ultra sharp. But, I mean, it's big enough to where I should be able to see the minimap pretty easily. I feel like it gets cluttered because there are a lot of different icons on there. And they're not always clear. Uh, you know, to me, a minimap should be the kind of thing that's there so that you don't have to constantly open your map. And I have to constantly open my map in Borderlands 2. See, I only have to open. I I find myself only opening the map when I'm when I'm figuring out where the next quest that we're going on starts at. Right. But once we get to where we're going, I think it's I'm not having any problems navigating. I don't know. Maybe I'm just used to being babysat by uh, by arrows and stuff. Like I mean, I, it's, they're not arrows. They're just um, you know, like if you get a blood splatter when you're damaged, it's a little heavier on one side, so you just kind of know. You know, it varies from game to game, but I, I just seem to... There, there's an indicator of where the bullets are coming from in this game? Yeah, the air, there's arrows that show which direction the bullet hits you. Like I've never the seen exact, that. Yeah, they're there. I don't believe you. Yeah, they're there. And if it's if it's your shield, it doesn't show up as arrows. It shows up as like a... Sh- it looks like a shield breaking, like a an energy shield breaking. Maybe I'm just not used to it enough, but um, for me, for whatever reason... I'm not picking up on the game, uh, on the heads-up display, and and a couple of the minor mechanics. I'm not picking up on them being intuitive. I but but the game did start to really really grow on me. The last I mean we played for probably like four hour five hours. I think we did. We played a while and in total probably like seven or eight hours. You know, over the two days we've played it, so we've played quite a bit. And uh, yeah, I didn't love it at first, but it, it is 
it started to grow on me very quickly about five or six hours into it. I don't know why what happened. I think I just like started to figure things out better. Um, I do like the weapons, the different weapons you have. I like that they have effects on people. I like a lot of the little small quirks about it. And obviously the dialogue is pretty funny. I think they do humor pretty well. So like I'm enjoying the game. I'm not trying to knock it, but yeah. in terms no. of a first person shooter, something isn't quite clicking with me and I'll hopefully be able to articulate that better in like our next episode. Yep, absolutely. We'll talk about it again. How long do you think uh, we're going to put into this game? I think it's a 30 or 40 hour game. Okay. I mean, it, it'll be around for a long time, which is good because we need a game we can play together for a while. Yes, yes. And I actually downloaded a DLC pack kind of preemptively. Oh, did you? Yeah, because like I had a guest over today and I we both enjoyed playing it quite a bit, but I didn't want to like go ahead of you in the game. I didn't want to keep advancing or anything or do missions without you. So there was a DLC, I don't remember what it's called, but it's basically like a cage match. It's like, oh, you've got the strongest monsters from different realms. You can fight them and gain experience points. Uh, It was $5 on the PlayStation Network, so it was very cheap in my mind. You know, I paid that much for an alternate costume in Final Fantasy XIII too. Hi-yo! But I I thought it was like, okay, it'll pop something in the main menu or maybe in a town and you can just like teleport into a cage match somewhere and maybe gain some XP, maybe get an item or whatever. But I guess it kind of appears in the main game when you're around like chapter 10, which whatever. We're close. Are we? Okay. And it it recommended like level 15 to 20 to be at. So we're we're at level 12 right now. So we'll be able to do it soon. But I'll I'll make sure to tell you what that is and maybe we can do a couple extra missions in that. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, that that was just going to be a side thing, kind of like a, oh yeah, I'll boost a little bit and maybe get a couple levels ahead of you since you're obviously better at the game than I am for the most part. Uh, Yeah, I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> Although, hey, I'm starting to hold my ground because uh, there was one part. And the other thing that bothers me is there's a lot of pits just kind of like tucked into corners. Yeah, it's a very big world. It's it's a very big world. But I don't like the pits. Like, you know, I'll be in a fighter fight and I'll, I'll sidestep somewhere on a catwalk like, not going off the railing, but just, like, a corner of the catwalk, there'll be a random hole. And then suddenly I'm dropped back, and I have to backtrack, like, two minutes to get back to where I was in the level. This is a little frustrating. Sure. I don't love the, the level design, you know, a ton yet, but I'm also kind of put out because the whole first several hours of the game takes place in a snow tundra, or frozen tundra, and uh, I'd like a little bit more vibrant environment, you know? I don't know if you're going to find much vibrancy uh, to, th- to this particular world. Maybe not so much vibrant, but a little less stagnant. I mean, I'm not knocking the art style, but again, it's just like that environment. I'm just kind of like, let's go to like a forest or something. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. I don't think you're going to find a forest. Okay. uh, Like I said. Maybe some green. I don't know. F***ing whatever. Like blue, pink, something. Uh, We all know that all games are brown now. (laughs) It's just how how games work. Except Deus Ex, which is gold. Which is gold. (laughs) And I and. Funny little tidbit, uh, when I was when I was migrating Unqualified over to Tumblr, because uh, now you can find us at unqualifiedpodcast.tumblr.com, I added album art to every episode. Oh, did you? And for the Deus Ex episode, I went on Google Images and searched for Deus Ex, and th- every image was gold. What did I tell you? Like, I, I should have just taken a screenshot of, of this Google image search results because, like, seriously, every screen from the game, all of the promotional art, like, uh, so, listener, if you missed it, one of our, like, first few podcasts, John reviewed Deus Ex and talks about how gold the game is. And just do a Google image search and, uh, yeah, I verified that you were correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, was, it was pretty entertaining to me. Well, then, 
I'm out of things to talk to you about. Yeah, I don't really want to talk to you much either. Take us out. Take <laughs> What does that mean? Take us out. Oh, listener, you have found your way to... See what I did there? That was my impression of you. Oh, right. Because it, it's an hour and a half into the podcast, and now we're... That, that we're, just happened at the end of the episode. We're just right? now yeah, saying... No, I like that. No, this is... I like that you're an asshole. Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, you can find us at unqualifiedpodcast.tumblr.com. Um, we have a new, a brand new iTunes feed where you can find us on iTunes. Uh, and in addition to podcasts posted every Monday on Tumblr, we're also going to be posting various like video game images and stories and blog, things like blog that. posts blog uh, posts yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to start posting on that a little more so you may start seeing some posts from me uh from me listener when you're at when you're there at the uh at the tumblr page yeah so please follow us and um there's also an ask us anything section on our page so if you'd like to submit a question we would love to address some things in future podcasts because that's always fun absolutely i would love to respond to some questions great user mail User mail. For non-users. And you can find our Twitter handles on there as well, but John is at EatPlayGame, and I'm at Producer Cody. And our next podcast will probably be shorter because I won't be ranting about a 14-year-old game the whole time. That's that's what everybody's here to listen to, though. So Because next time I'm reviewing a Final Fantasy VI mod, which is actually 16 years old. <sighs> I don't actually know if it's 16 years old, but it's old. It's old.